Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling on the butt. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm party. And Jake LaTondres. I am bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFour sitting in the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Independence Day to you guys. You're probably out watching fireworks tonight. I'm sitting behind a computer putting together another mixtape episode of the End of the Line podcast. Yesterday, we focused on some of the greatest stories told on Mondays with Rob. Today, we're going to go on a little bit more serious note. We're going to look back on some of those great waterfowl hunters that have been on the podcast, but not so much them, but their dogs. There's been a lot of great dog stories told on this podcast. You know, I told Pat Pitt a long time ago when when we were doing the series with him, never will feel the 100% satisfaction of a great waterfowl hunt without a great dog standing beside you or sitting beside you, I should say. Get a lot of requests. Let me start off by saying this to introduce this first clip. I get a lot of requests, a lot of emails, a lot of messages. Hey, blah, blah, blah. What, what's that episode? I want to go back and listen to it. One of the most requested episodes that I get a message about is Justin Harrison, better known as Gator to a lot of people from the old msducks.com days, um, and his dog Gage. It's a story that moved a lot of people when they heard it. It's been spread out, told to a lot of people, hey, you need to go hear this. And man, it's a good one. I'll let you listen in, pick up that day where Justin tells the story of Gage. All right, so I bought, I bought Gage in 01. He was born September the 14th. Three year, uh, three days after that infamous day, uh, in '01, and uh, paid the money for him. I had been out in Colorado, interning, out out in uh, Westminster, which is a northwest suburb of Denver, for the summer from May to the about the end of August. Pharmacy stuff, working with Walgreens, and and uh, I saved up. I managed miraculously to save up money, I'd wanted a dog. And, uh, you know, I've been duck hunting for, I'm 41, 42, whatever, 76, I, I don't even know now. Um, and uh, I've been duck hunting 
you know, I say off and on for 30 of those years, and that's not really fair. I mean, we were going and shooting wood ducks and stuff like that in South Mississippi sloughs, and, and that was fine, but that's not true duck hunting. I didn't get into duck hunting until the mid-'90s when I was in college. Uh, some of my fraternity brothers, some of my baseball teammates were, you know, they were from the Delta, from from Louisiana, which was uh, uh, from, you know, South Louisiana. We had a big New Orleans contingent at Southern. And I just saw these dogs and, and everything, and I was like, man, one day I'm doing that. And um, so I made my mind up when I went out to Colorado. I'm going to have my fun. I mean, I'm going to have my fun. And I did. But I managed to put enough back for a puppy. And uh, at the, Gage wasn't nothing. Like, you could look on his pedigree, and I think there were three or four master hunters, but nothing like you would see today. But it was what I could afford. And uh, paid, called Mr. Granger down there in South Mississippi, and I, I, you know, I went down there, and some things happened, and I realized that was the puppy I wanted. Got him. Brought him home. After saying that, you're going to have to remind me what the question was, Rocky. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, uh, I get, I get, I just, I just get like, I start remembering stuff with Gage, and and I just don't, I don't know how to talk about him. Uh, I, it's been, I put him down August the fifteenth of. Uh, 2017, and I've I've never not talked thought about him a day. I don't know, and um, but I was given a dog, and I, I'm sorry if this sounds broken up because it is. Um, I was given a dog. I was the good Lord smiled on me because I didn't deserve Gage, and Gage didn't deserve me. I was a shithead for most of his life. I was a turd because I was young and I didn't know nothing and you couldn't tell me nothing. And uh, when I bought him, you know, I, I, I bought the dog without even knowing, without even thinking about it's the last time I ever did this. I did something without researching the something. You know, and uh, huh. I bought him, had him paid for, and then started researching. And and in 2000, which was when this was, or 2001, I'm sorry, um, it, Richard Walters' uh, Water Dog book was a still still a a go to. I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. And it was like, you do this, this, and this. You pick your dog up for 49 days. And, brother, I was adamant about it. I told Mr. Grant, I said, I'm not coming. 49 days, not coming. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Now that I look back on it. Uh, sure, that's not a bad benchmark, but if you've got your child being delivered, you know, around there or vacation or something like that, this pup 
can stay there for a little while. Anyway, do do we do you want to get into this right now? Because this is this is one of those circles I was telling you about. This includes Raggio and it includes everybody. Uh, and, no, and it ends no. up at Mr. Sam. I mean, I, we can, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, I think, I, listen, I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast have those relationships with their dogs, like you're talking does. about. Every, every, everybody does. And I, and I see them now I've got, you know, I'm old enough now. I'm in my forties. I have parents. My best friend's mom died this week. And I, I, it's like you're seeing things that you've held dear for so long go away. And anyway, um, so so Gage, Gage and I got started with a very auspicious uh, start. Um, it was Thanksgiving. I was loading my truck. I had him on the back of the truck. You know, everybody rides around with a dog in the back of the truck, right? Every freaking redneck you've ever met. Don't do it if you're doing it. Well, I just had him up there packing my truck up, and I walked inside, and the dude just decided he was going to follow me. And he bailed off the truck with the tailgate up. So he's not but two or three months old. He's he was born in September, and this is yeah. I picked him up LSU weekend. This only LSU game I missed my whole time at Oxford. I know Jeff, that pains you to hear. And um, that it was that weekend I picked him up. It's like I picked him up October the twenty second or something like that. I'm loading up for the holidays. He bails off the truck, lands wrong, breaks his front right leg snaps it i'm inside like a complete shithead he's outside holding his leg up i run out i take him to dr lee Payne at at, uh oxford animal you know lee fixes him up cast him up the 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 actually the best animal or dog Canine bone doctor, probably Lee, in the Lee, South. Lee, Lee is is great, and a lot of people don't understand. Lee, or maybe you do. Lee's competitive with his dogs too. So I mean, he gets that side of it. I mean, these these dogs are are ultra athletes, and I don't think anybody realizes that. Let me. I don't think anybody outside of the dog world realizes that. These these dogs, man, you've got to watch their nutrition. You've got to watch them. They're they're aggressive, not toward people, but I mean they're they're if they see an opening, they're taking it because that's what they're trained to do. And I don't think we give them enough credit. I mean, these dogs are they're insane with what they can do and what they can learn. I mean, how many dogs have you heard that have learned? to pull the rope on the refrigerator to deer camp and bring their owner the Bud Light. I mean, they're 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 out there. And that's just simple stuff. I mean these dogs are learning to take hand signals at three and 
300 yards. So broke his leg, was out uh, that whole season, and being the young idiot that I was, I thought I was going to take a four-month-old dog. We're going to be duck hunting. It didn't happen, thank God. And uh, next year rolls around, and we had been training with the good Mr. Walters, 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 uh, handbook. And uh, we get almost through the season. Actually, it was through my season. I was fixing to have some tests really pick up and was not going to be able to hunt anymore. And... uh, Gates was with me. We were on a, an unnamed WMA in Mississippi, north, south, central. Piss on you people that want to know. Uh, and uh, we're a couple of ducks shy of a limit. <clears throat> and uh, two come in, a couple of mallards shy of a, of a good greenhead limit. Two come in, and I shoot one stone dead and one falls further away. There's dozens and dozens of people that have heard the story you're about to hear, but a lot of your people from far off haven't. Uh, the cripple falls and starts swimming away. And I could, and, and number one, Gage broke, which he always did that year, always. He was a puppy. Well, yeah, but I hadn't done what I needed to do. You know, and we can get, I don't want to get into all the training philosophy and everything. I just can tell you what I did. I couldn't pull him off the dead bird, the stone dead bird, to get the the cripple. The cripple got away. The cripple got away across deep water that I couldn't get to. So the, the bird died at some point. I don't know. And I can remember walking out going, I, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. So I posted on MS Ducks that story. And Travis Bruce, Goose Bruce, who does not get enough credit for bringing people to the dog training world, Travis was his, is still, I think he likes golf and Memphis State more than anything now and Travis what 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 man why but uh Travis brought more people into the dog training world and had fun with them I know because I've been at the hunt test with him than any human being I've ever met he was the greatest ambassador for the hunt and retriever club that I've ever seen and he never got the credit he deserved ever Hey Justin, yeah, you have. Don't you have pictures from Gage's last hunt? I do, I, and I'll never forget that hunt because it's full circle. And I'm glad you brought that up. Did you have a specific question, or do you want me to? No, I want you to walk through that last hunt real quick. The last hunt, okay. Uh, I'll never, I, I'll never forget this as long as I live. And every time I think about it, and if I my voice kind of cracks. I hope everybody understands. Um, so if you remember the hunt, I told you where I got started with everything. There was a bird that two came in and, and one went out and we never got it. And uh, 
Gage had gone years without breaking Rocky and Jeff. I mean, years. I mean, he just learned the game. He just learned that if I sit, I'm going to get the go. And if I don't, Dye's not going to let me go. And if I can digress for one second, Ramsey and I, the funnest year I ever had hunting was in 08 or 09, and Ramsey and I hunted eiders. It's when I was introduced to Langill, it Ramsey and I hunted eiders in, uh, off Plymouth, Massachusetts. And then I took him to a place that I hold dear for seven straight days. And somewhere along those seven straight days, I don't know what the dog is. Tra- <laughs> Trapper, I mean, uh, Ramsey looked at me and said, uh, dude, you, you talk to gays like I talk to my kids. And I was single at the time, understand, and, and, and all that, and certainly didn't have kids. And I said, well, I mean, that's just kind of the way we communicate. It's the best way. Anyway, so the day I retired Gage, he was 14. He had hunted 14. I mean, he was, it was hard. I mean, he was, I knew he had lost, and I knew he'd lost a lot of his hearing. I'd never seen him on a long retrieve. Uh, we were, Rocky, we were hunting a lot out the ponds, and if I knew it, it didn't, it didn't happen. I just wasn't going to put him in a lot of mess. We'd, we'd play the wind, pick the birds up. You know the ponds I'm talking about. And uh, so uh, one of my great friends, I've hunted Alaska for sea ducks with him, Harlequin, Chris called me and said, hey, we've got birds up at, at uh, Rosewood up north, kind of, north Indianola, right around Indianola. And I said, okay. He said, bring, come on. I said, well, you know, kind of plan on hunting gauge and make, he's like, bring, let's go. And man, it was, it was a hard freeze. And, uh, we broke ice and we broke a, a hole up and we were hunting flag water. And, uh, after the first few birds, I would send gauge and I could just see in his, and the way we react, it was like, I'm tired of this. And it's the first time I ever saw that dog not, like, peel out to go get a bird. And there was three of us. And we were two birds shy of a limit. And I had already sat there looking at him. I, it was It was such a definite thing. I had walked all the way back to the car, which wasn't far, to my truck, and grabbed the dog stand. And we were hunting on the bank of, of a, in the trees. I mean, we weren't wet. But I picked, I brought the dog stand back and put it up on a tree so he could just get off the cold, muddy ground. I could, I could just tell, right? I could tell it was, we were, we were saying bye to something. And, uh, Two miles came in. I don't even remember who shot. I don't. I don't, I don't know that I did. And the hell, just seeing me shoot, I probably didn't hit him. And uh, one fell dead, and one fell swimming away. 
and for the first time in forever, Gage broke. And he brought that bird back. Let me back up. He broke, but he stopped on the whistle. And I I gave him a hand signal, and he picked up the cripple. And he came back, and he handed me the bird. I looked down at him. Now I told him I love him. And I said, what was it? And I'm sorry. That's a, that's a tough one to remember. But he brought it back. And I looked at Chris, and I think we had some off ducks left or something, and I said, Chris, I'm going to take my dog back to the truck. And y'all, you know, we had a couple of more. I think, you know, I know we had a couple of more off ducks. And, and Chris and, and, and Alex knew exactly what was going on. And they're like, yeah, man, go, go. And then Gage and I walked back and had a talk. And, and then, you know. And then, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you retire, you you would like to live life a little while. But most times when people retire, I mean, I don't think people appreciate work enough. Most times when people retire, what's the first thing you freaking happen? My technician retired a couple of years ago. I said, you'll be dead within six months, Sharon. Don't do it. I mean, and that's kind of the way things happen. And you don't really get to enjoy anything because people don't realize how fun what they're doing right now is. And, uh, you know, yeah, anyway, I'm spilling my soul out for, God almighty, the whole world, I guess. But I, and I don't mean to, but, but Gage was a great, great dog. He was never a good, never, ever, ever a good hunt test dog, ever. I'll never say that about him, but he was a damn fine hunting dog that I think anybody would have enjoyed. And and Rocky and Jeff, honestly, I the magic's been kind of gone for a while, and the milk's on the floor, and I just uh, I did I hunted one time this year, and that was only because Law Dog Old Alec uh, asked me to go with him. Beautiful hunt, didn't kill a damn thing, but it was a great hunt. It was timber, and and uh, I just haven't. And Trapper's 12, I mean, and he's deaf. You know, we shoot over these dogs. We don't realize what we put these dogs through. I don't... You know, another one that's talked about a lot is the episode we did with Pat Pitt and Patrick and Stephen Pitt when we talked about their dogs. This first clip you're going to hear about why not only Pat, but his sons think that it's important to have a good retriever on a waterfowl hunt. Mr. Pat, stretching over your whole waterfowling career, 
Look, I know that you've had some good ones, but is there one that sticks out more than any of them? You know, I thought you were going to say that today, and it is physically impossible for me to. It wouldn't be fair to the dogs I've had for me to name one. I mean, you know, yeah, Ace was a great dog. Uh, a week after I had my heart attack, or nine days, or whatever, where I mean, I was in a duck pit with a dog the last day of the season, and he picked up his seven thousandth bird, and you know, two years later, he picked up number eight thousand for me, and and but uh, you know. I, I've had dogs that were blue ribbon, blue blooded that you know would would do anything that I ask, and even more. I've got one right now that uh, blew a knee out, and we put a knee implant in him, which was something new at the time several years ago. And uh, ten days later, he was hunting. Uh, once we got the stitches out. Uh, and the other dog I've got right now, I don't know his limitations because he amazes me with some of the marks he makes and some of the blinds he runs. Um, I mean, you know, I've had eight dogs. I mean, starting with the dog that was given to me by a doctor in Chattanooga that was out of Nilo Kennels, out of a field champion male and female. That I didn't know anything about training. You know, I was throwing a tennis shoe over the neighbor's four-foot fence, and he'd jump it and pick it up and jump it and come back. And uh, He tried to retrieve a deer for me from me, for me out of the Mississippi, uh, Tennessee River one time. I mean, uh, it was kind of on-the-job training, and I've had two Chesapeake's that uh, were, were super phenomenal dogs. I've had uh, father-son dogs the only puppy that other than one chesapeake that i ever raised out of uh, a dog i had named lucky that was qualified all age uh, that was as good of uh, as good a dog as you'd ever want to hunt and then his son clipper came along and uh, you know he's buried in front of one of our duck pits you know and it's just uh, i can't I can't, in my mind, go on record as saying I like this dog the best because it wouldn't be fair to the other ones. And, you know, when I get to wherever they are, you know, seven of them are going to bite me. I just don't. I don't. Each dog has done things special, okay? Each dog, you know, I learned to hunt with one dog and, and, uh, you know, I've been with with these dogs that have made retrieves that just bring tears to your eyes, and and seeing the heart that these dogs have had uh, is special. And that's I'm not copping out on the question. That's the best I can do. No, I, th- I think that was a great answer, Patrick. You said it best, and it was last week when we were after the podcast was over with. You you said it best when, and, and I've heard. Tony say this, I think he said in that video about Ruff, you know, all duck hunters are guaranteed one good dog in their lifetime. How's the, yeah. how's the saying go, Patrick? Uh, I want, it's something along the lines of, you know, you only you only get one good dog. And I, I don't believe that to be true. Uh, that's what we were talking about because 
it's up to you to get that good dog. I mean, you can, that is saying is it costs just as much to feed a bad one as it does a good one. That's a great saying, too. So, well, I mean, that, that's why, you know, Dad was mentioning before we started recording tonight that he's given away and sold dogs that have made great dogs for other people, but they didn't make a great dog for him. And he's, you know, it's everybody's got their own caliber, personality, everything that they're looking for in a dog. And it, if you can continue to find that, you can continue to have great dogs. Because like Dad said, I mean, I... He's had eight, and I've been uh, I've been alive for seven of them, and can remember hunting with five of them. So I, I mean, some of the stuff that he's talking about, like I, I can picture in every one of those dogs. Well, you know, my my side of the coin too is, you know, everybody should have one great dog in their life. I even up the ante on that. Everybody should have a good woman and a good dog once in their life. I've been blessed to have a woman, my wife, that is nominated for sainthood by several people, and eight good dogs. And and like I say, if I set my sights and expectations high, and if the dogs don't measure up to that, you know, I find them a good home. And I've I've got to thank Chris Aiken in Bono, Arkansas, for for training. I guess four of these dogs, the last four I've had, um, and he knew Chris knows how to match up dogs to an owner. And I've I've been buying uh, finished dogs. I don't have time to raise a puppy because I got to go hunting. And uh, you know I would tell Chris and say, look, I'm fixing to have to retire a dog, or I got one that's not going to make it till next year or whatever and and he gets on the the road to find me what he calls a dog that likes to duck hunt as much as I do and uh he's been real good at it uh that's all I can say I mean you know it's just uh and he's trained the boys dogs too he trains Josie and and a lot of boom and and uh you know they're dear to these guys and and uh they think just as much of them because you become a team with a dog, okay? It's just like I don't care if you are uh, got a bird dog that you like to hunt with or whatever. I think labs have more personality than any of them, but, but you become a team. And the dog depends on you to put him in the direction of a bird on the blind. Uh, the dog depends on you to be able to kill the duck for him. Uh, and you depend on the dog to keep you from having to swim the water the water or wade the mud. Uh, the only time I've hunted without a dog in the last several years, every duck I killed in a muddy bean field, I crippled and had to run them down myself. Now, a fat guy running across a bean field, you know, it's funny for about the first time, but, you know, when it gets to number six, it's not near as funny anymore. So... Uh, <laughs> But I just refuse to hunt with a dog. And like I say, I, we have people come into the, the LLDC and and uh, they'll bring their dog and it's like, yeah, he can, uh, I can throw a dummy as far as I can and he can get it every time. Well, that ain't even the tip of the iceberg. You know, I, I don't like a dog breaking. 
I don't want to see something going on out of the corner of my eye when it's dangerous, number one, but uh, I don't want to see a dog get hurt. But you're out there, and if you've got a 30-minute or a two-hour window to kill ducks, you don't want to spend half that time messing around with a dog that that won't mind, that that won't handle, that won't mark, that won't do anything. Because uh, we'll run two dogs at a time, and and we get, you know, we'll have a flock of teal come in and sometimes kill eight and ten of them, and five minutes later we're we're hunting again because every bird's picked up and we hadn't got out of the pit. So uh, that's what I demand and expect from a dog. True or false? A duck hunter will not understand the maximum satisfaction of a duck hunt until they have a good dog. True. No, it's definitely true. That's a no-brainer. I, I fully agree with that. Man, it's uh, I had one good one. I, I'll say this. I'm not going to tell my story. This is y'all's time, but I had one awesome dog. And at the dog that followed the awesome dog, he was great. He was great. I mean, if we grade them out, I mean, the first one was an A+, plus, the next one was a, a A-. minus, But Man, I had a connection. That dog knew what I was thinking. I knew what the dog was thinking. I could watch that dog. You know, one of the mm-hmm. key things to all this crazy face mask, face paint world that we live in now, <laughs> you don't need it. Just keep your head down and watch your dog's eyes. Is all you have oh, to yeah. do. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I know uh, Stephen's dog, Josie, was a classic example of that. The closer the ducks would get, the lower she'd get in the dog box, and she would back up in that dog box as far as she could, kind of like loading an F-14 into a catapult. She was sitting on G waiting on O, and I can remember watching her eyes light up as the birds got closer. And if I lose a duck, you know, when I know they're in close, the first thing I'll do is look, look where my dog's looking. And uh, I tell people that are hunting with me, if you don't see the ducks that we're fixing to shoot, watch me. I'm watching them, or my dog, one, is watching them. Most times, both of us. But, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think it ought to be against law to hunt without a good dog, personally. Uh, or I'm going to say, or at least an average or better dog. I mean, there's a lot of dogs that'll get the chicken, don't get me wrong, but until you hunt with one that was, that's polished, that knows as much about it as you do, uh, you've missed out on 50% of, of what waterfowl hunting is all about. And that first segment with the pits, you, you, we, you heard how important a retriever is to a waterfowl hunt and to how, how important they are to the owner and hunter and handler themselves. Moving into a little bit of a more serious note with with the pits in the same episode, they talked about some of the most iconic and last retrieves of of dogs that just just stick out in their mind. There's some great stories. This is these next three segments are why this is one of the most requested and most listened to episode of the end of the line podcast. 
my 21st birthday, uh-huh. a good friend of ours, Larry Redman, had uh, had wanted to give my dad a dog. And uh, dad's like, well, I really don't need a dog, but since you're going to you know, have a litter of puppies, I'll, I'll, I want you, you know, to give it to my son, Stephen. He's like, well, sure, sure. I just, you know, you've done so much, and I just want to, you know, give you a little bit of uh, gratitude. And I said, well, that's nice. So we were in uh, South Dakota turkey hunting when we get a phone call from Larry and says, well, I hope you want a female. And uh, we just kind of laughed, and Larry said, well, that's all I was born, was one one female uh, lab. So I got her, um, you know, uh, back then on my 21st birthday. So, you know, we've been hunting hunting that long, and this year was our our last hunt. And uh, like the, I, told, I told the story earlier, was, a, was a, the hunt I killed a McGanger on. And, um, you know, we hunted out there, just me and her together on, on that last day of the duck season this year. And it was it was tough knowing it. I mean, just sit there at the, you know, opening day of duck season, I got to hunt her. And I just, I kind of told myself, I'm going to hunt her as many days as I can take her. And uh, I hunted her this year, I think all but two days that I went just and i kept saying if she can't if i don't think she's got it i'll i'll, I'll let her sit it out but at uh you know 13 and a half almost 14 she went with me every every hunt this year and uh like patrick said towards you know some of those hunts where we had good hunts and and uh, her she was stiff enough and i'd have to pick her up out of the pit to run them down but uh that last hunt it was really special you know just being able to share it just me and her and uh, just sit there in the pit and you know, have a little conversation with her and to thank her. And, but uh, it was special. I mean, it was, it was, it's, you know, I can't, and she's done like, you know, dad said, you know, she's done so many special retrieves and, you know, never be, you know, like you, like you said, or you can grade a dog A, A plus, A minus. And she was definitely my, my first one. And it's going to be, be taught tough to be her from my, my first dog. So it's, uh, but she, she definitely, she didn't, for a female, she definitely didn't, not your typical female. I mean, she's more of a male, uh, how she acted in her drive and her speed and, and how she was built. I mean, she's built more, uh, more leggy dog like that. She's more like a, looks like a male almost. Cause a lot of people would think that's what she was, but, but, uh, yeah, she, she was, she's special for me. She's still, still with me here today. And, and you know, I, I, I'm thankful I got to do it last time and, and no, and no, it's going to be my last time. That's what I always told, Patrick, you know, and Dad is like, I just want to know that this is going to be our last hunt, so I can set it up the way I want it to happen. And I was lucky to, to accomplish that because I've had friends who didn't get to realize that that was going to be the last hunt. And, you know, they just kind of, you know, look back on and wish they would have done something different. But you know, just knowing that you know, this is her last duck, I'm going to be sure this was going to the freezer for Dad to mount it. And you know, Dad's got, Dad's got quite a few to mount for me on that hunt because actually he's going to do uh, four, you know, four of the last actually seven ducks she picked up are going to get mounted and uh going to do them all in a dead mount for me well three of them are dead mount one of them separate so it's uh just a little little special for me and her both just to just to you know remember each other of well speaking of last retrieves mr pat you know having the dogs that you did uh, i'm sure that you remember a couple of them their last retrieves well Ace's 8,000 wasn't his last retrieve, but he, when I decided to, that 
he wasn't going to be able to go anymore. His, 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 he had the heart, but didn't have the wheels. And, um, a matter of fact, I took him to the same pit that, uh, Patrick had hunted, uh, a lot of him on her last hunt. And it was a morning where it was wind of pain, ice and a stiff wind blowing and, uh, ducks were hungry looking for open water. And I've, I got in there and I, I killed a couple of greenheads early and he labored so, so hard to pick those, those birds up and, and, you know, a dog that used to run like a Ferrari was, you know, like a, a VW Beetle or something. And it just, it broke my heart to see him go trying to do what he knew to do at the speed he used to have and not be able to. And, I didn't shoot limited ducks that day. The third greenhead that, I don't know if it was a pair or a single, the third greenhead came in and that, and that hard, hard north wind we had, I didn't, I didn't get out in front of him enough and shot his landing gear out and, and uh, just barely wing tipped him and he fell, I don't know, two, three levees over and, and of course I marked him. He was a hell of a marking dog and, and, uh, you know, I, I could have sat down and read War and Peace by the time it took that dog to go get that duck, find it crippled, and bring it back. And, I mean, he he, he got back to the pit and, you know, stood there and held a duck, and I took it from him. And uh, I said, uh, that's it, buddy. We're going home. So uh, I headed back to the duck camp with my three mallards, and I've got that last duck mounted uh, along with his 8,000 duck. And... You know that's just that's just one of many, but uh, that one really stands out in my mind because I quit when I did out of respect for him, and because I felt like I was punishing him, and it wasn't like he wouldn't go. I mean, he would he would run in front of a train for me if I asked him to, but uh, um, out of respect for him, um, I was happy and and he was proud and. We went back to the camp house, and he got to you know warm up in the in the boot room and whatnot. And it's you know it's just you know little things like that stand out in your mind. I mean they may be little to some people, but they're paramount to me. And uh, well, Patrick, you had a you had a good story that you were going to tell. I'll, I'll let you go into that. Yeah. Um... My first, my first dog was a Chesapeake, and and you know I, I'm kind of like Dad on his first dog. You know I I learned as much from him as as he learned from me. But uh, my second dog, um, Dad got, bought me a uh, a 14 month old lab puppy out of Chris Aiken's dog Boomer, who had just won the 2003 Super Retriever Series, and. Uh, her name, her name was Lotta Boom. At the time he bought her at 14 months old, she weighed 30 pounds. She was a little bitty fireball. That's, I mean, she was wide open all the time. And, uh, uh, she lived with me in college. Uh, you know, she lived with me when I moved to Alabama to work for a taxidermist. You know, it was her and I for a long time. And that, you know, you're talking about the dog that you had, uh, that you spend, I spent 15 years with her. Uh, she she made her 15th birthday, and uh, a month later, I, I had to put her down. But 
two years ago, I made her final hunt with her. And leading up to it, I told I told Dad I want to go somewhere just me and her. And I, I, I know I know Dad wanted to hunt with me. You know, I know Stephen wanted to hunt with me, but I told them both I want to be by myself. I want to be just me and her. I was able to pick a pit the last morning uh, a duck season and go by myself. It had been one of the one of the slower pits, but I knew I could go in there by myself and kill a woman of ducks if 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 everything lined up like it was supposed to. And uh, get out there with her. Just a few minutes after shooting time, I killed a speck, and she picked it up. And a few minutes after that, I uh, had a flock of teal hit the decoys, and I, and I tripled. And she picked all of them up. And then then we sat there for a little while. And I could have killed a shoveler, but I didn't want to. Because, you know, if I, I, I could not let that dog's last duck be a spoon. As much as I, I've killed <laughs> my fair share of them, and I'll shoot the next one in the decoys. It don't bother me, but... I couldn't do that to her. I wasn't gonna make her last duck a spoon. So, I, you know, I killed a, I killed a greenhead. An hour goes by, and I kill a greenhead. You know, so got five ducks in the goose. I'm waiting on that last duck, and uh, working a pair of mallards, and they come around downwind just like they're supposed to, hit the hole, and I killed a greenhead, and I send her, and I'm choking back tears as I call her name, and I really. At that point in time, I, almost, I really didn't even have to call her name, but she was about deaf. She almost couldn't hear. And most of the time, she still, you know, she stayed a little dog all, all the way through. At, at the end of her hunting career, she only weighed about 50 pounds. I, I just reach over and put my hand on her stomach and just shove her out of the dog box. I, you know, pick her up one-handed and set her out because, you know, she's having trouble jumping and she couldn't hear, but she knew if I put her out, it was time to go. So, anyway, I, I'm choking them back and get her out. And uh, the duck had fallen about, I don't know, 10 or 15 yards from the levee that the pit's in. And then, uh, when she got to it, it rolled over and flopped to the levee. So I, uh, I lost it in the rice double there against the, against the levee. And, of course, at her age, that duck was a lot faster than her. But when, when it hit the levee, it stopped, and she picked it up. And as soon as she stepped up on the levee, I saw something flash. And I was crying. So, I, you know, I... I didn't. I I couldn't believe it at first, and she took about two more steps, and I could see it shining big as day. She brought me back a band for her last duck. And, Holy uh, moly! I had not well, I killed a banded had not killed a banded mallard in like five years. I was on a serious drought. But uh, dude, that is you know, awesome. Yeah, I, I I couldn't have scripted a better final hunt with me and her. And, you couldn't uh, write a better script. You know, like say she that was she made she made well over four thousand retrieves for me uh, in her career. Uh, of course, I you know I don't get to hunt like Dad. I'm not retired yet. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, the the last duck she brought to me was banded greenhead. Wow, man, what a what a ending story to a great career. No, it was it was incredible. And the pits can tell a story about a dog. Just like Justin Harrison's episode, Engage, one of the other most requested and most listened to 
episode is the episode with Steve Horn. It's an episode that I recorded back last year, back in the spring. Steve had a duck camp right down the road from my lodge, Mossy Island Outfitters, for years. And him and his dog, Tess, were on a hunt right at shooting time. But his dog was shot on a hunt. Now, speaking from the vet's husband and hunter's point of view, there was no way in the world this dog was supposed to make it. But it's 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 an amazing story. I'll leave it at that. And we open that story up right now with Steve as they head out that morning on December the 14th. I think it was 2000. And nine. It's an amazing story. You want to stick around for this one. Here it is. <clears throat> and so uh, that particular morning, uh, it, was, it was a Sunday morning, uh, December 14th. We all driving from uh, Bell Zone up here. We, of course, got up a little bit earlier than normal and got up here and got situated. We just parked on the pond levee here at where the, the fish ponds are. And then we've got another 260 acres of CRP that's close by and we all loaded up and went over to the woods and at that particular time too we were all flooded we'd gotten you know you <laughs> the one thing you can depend on uh in the uh, delta up here is for the weather not to be dependable nor know if you're going to be flooded from one year to another and that's but this particular <laughs> time there is at this particular time, we were going in and out with boats. It was uh, about a mile run back in there. We were we were either walking, pulling mud, walking down the levee, or and pulling the decoys, et cetera, in the boat and getting all set up. And we broke into two different groups that morning. Brett and his bunch went north of where we were hunting, and uh, I got. What was, the, what was the weather like that day, Steve? Great, great question. It was it was really overcast. It was uh, it, it, it was dark, and you know it was it was one of those mornings <clears throat> that you knew that if you ever got in there and got set up, you were gonna wax them. There wasn't any doubt about it. It was a little mist in the air. It was cloudy. It was it was it was low cloud cover, and that, uh, that's right. You know, it was. I, I remember that now. I remember uh, it being a low cloud day. Just about the time, you know, you would you would hit them, you know, two or three times, they'd just lock up and fall in there because they were looking for a place to go. And we had one of those mornings started, and we got in there about, it was about, it was way before daylight. And so by daylight and shooting time, which was about 6.30 as normal, um, the ducks started coming in there, and we started, we started pounding them. And um, I, a duck came in, and I will have to give you a little heads up if I'm, if I pause, it's because I, I, I to this day, have trouble t telling the story or talking about this. But uh, a duck made a swing. Uh, I, I remember it just like now. A duck came in behind us, made a swing to the what's, was to the left of me, which was the south, and broke back around. And when I, I dropped the duck, and when I shot the duck, it hit the water. And big old green head hit the water. And I looked at a friend I was hunting with and I said shoot uh, shoot that cripple but don't shoot my and I didn't get it out of my mouth uh, I was going to tell him don't shoot my dog because Tess had broke and you know that's why you need a steady dog number one if you you know if you 
you need to steady dog. <laughs> but anyway, she broke and went for the duck, and the person that that ended up shooting her thought it was it was just looked like a duck head coming through the water. You know, we got a cripple. Shoot the cripple. We all do it. But this just happened to be my dog. Yeah, and, and, and I'll say this, Steve. I will I will say this right here for anybody that would sit there and say, well, should have made sure what you're shooting at. Look, at, at the first eye. shooting light, it happened to me. It yeah. happened to me. It, right. It, my father-in-law shot my dog on the first set of ducks that came in. I The dog had been sent. We had knocked three ducks down. Father-in-law, uh, I told him to shoot a cripple. while, yeah. And I thought that he had saw, he saw me send the dog. Well, he ended right. up thinking that the dog's hit in the early morning light, low cloud day. You know, he was 55 years old, starting to lose his sight, his hearing, blah, 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 shot shot across the dog. Anyway, yeah. I don't mean, I'm not trying to outstory you or anything. I'm just saying, uh-huh. don't act like, I, I know what's going to come from this. Man, the guy should have been sure of what he was shooting at. Well, he was. He, he was yeah. sure it was. When to him and the way he, with the way he saw it, and the way the weather was. And I'm tell, this is not like a bright, sunshiny, you know, bluebird day. I mean, this is overcast, misting rain, and and it's already poor light conditions because it was six. It couldn't have been past. The dog was shot at six forty in the morning. I know the minute it was shot. So probably five minutes after shooting time. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was just barely getting, you know, barely getting light enough to where you could, you know, you could pick a duck out and know if it was what it was and shoot it. And, um, anyway. Well, my, well, my point in all that was just don't, don't, don't stick your nose up in the air or whatever and sit there and say the people that are listening to this say, oh, it wouldn't happen to me. Bullsh. Crap. It can no, happen that- to anybody in these conditions. Absolutely, and it's a and it, you know the the big word here is accident. It was totally an accident. Nobody, I don't think, is going that you're duck hunting with. If you send your dog to pick up one of their birds or your birds, nobody's going to say, "Hey, I think I'm going to shoot your dog." I mean, that, yeah. that's that's not what's happening. I mean, it was a pure accident. But I got to tell you something: the guilt that those people carry for shooting your dog or or shooting an animal is unbelievable. Uh, the guy that I was hunting with uh, quit. I mean, he just almost for a year and a half, two years, he just didn't want to go. And, uh, you know, that's not how that needs to work out. Uh, right. I, I, look, yeah. accidents are accidents, and it, that's what this was. And, and fortunately, uh, when we get to the end of this, you know, we can we can say some good stuff, you know, that came out of it. So, uh, but well, let if, me ask, uh, Steve. Let me ask you this: So it happens. Did did the dog yelp? Did the dog? How, how did you know? Because how did you know what had just happened? I <laughs> when I said don't shoot my and the gun went off. The dog. Oh, you saw it. I'm sorry. You saw it. You saw yeah. it scrape. Oh, I did. The dog came straight up out of the water. I mean, just like you were, like it had stood up on a, a, a log under the water, just came straight up out of the water as high as she could and yelped. And, of course, I immediately said, oh, my God, you shot my dog. 
and I went tearing out there to pick her up, and um, somebody had gotten a boat and started bringing a boat over there to her, and I had scooped her up out of the water because I didn't want her to drown, obviously. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, she was still flopping and, or fighting, you know, fighting, paddling and trying to maintain balance and all kind of stuff. I finally scooped her up, got a hold of her, scooped her up, and the guy had the boat right there at the same time, and I put her over in the back seat of the boat, in the very transom of the boat, and laid her out, and uh, she had a vest on. Um, so I took the vest off. Of course, she was still and uh, going into shock. Uh, <laughs> I had taken several years ago taken a CPR course when a, a dive rescue used to scuba dive and, and I took a CPR course and, and 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 I tell you it's the same set of circumstances in a dog as it is pretty much with a human. They get trauma, they're gonna go into shock. And obviously this dog was uh, it's it's she shot in the head and I can't figure anything out what's going on. I, I stripped the vest off of her and start feeling of her body. And she's struggling breathing, and I'm thinking that, and I start giving her uh, chest compressions because I I couldn't really tell if she was going into uh, having a heart attack or what the real issue was. But after I I finally started doing the chest compressions, I felt of her chest and had a really strong heartbeat. So I knew that then that, you know, the injury wasn't part of that in her body, that it was more uh, in her head. And I, I picked her up to, to try it. She was, seemed like she was struggling breathing, and I picked her up, got her head up, and started doing mouth-to-mouth on her. And I hate to give you the grisly details, but when I got her mouth up to my mouth and I was blowing through her nose, man, blood just shot everywhere out the side of her face and everywhere because she had so many holes in her in her cheeks wow. and in her jaws. And, and um, you know, you weren't going to close that up and get air in her, but... I also noticed at that time she was pretty much just breathing on her own, so that wasn't a problem. And she did continue to go steadily into, uh, you know, go deeper and deeper and deeper into shock. But we got, I took my coat off, and there was another couple of guys, that, you know, threw jackets in there, and we had her all wrapped up and kind of had her warm uh, when we got her in the boat and got situated. Of course, the hunt was over with. I mean, everybody's, within that, everybody. This this destroyed everybody that morning, and we finally walked her out, which took us, you know, I don't know how long it took an eternity to me. And um, so you rode the up. boat. You, you you had to ride the boat back to where the where you where your camp is now, where y'all have parked, right? No, no, no. We were just we were just coming out of the CRP. The CRP was flooded, so the water ran up on the my south property line, which is a a levee over there it ran up the water kind of ran up so we would we didn't have a motor on the boat we were just using the boat to kind of sled stuff in and out i mean it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really, okay wasn't okay. really deep enough to, to run a motor so we were you know and i'll tell you this brett mosley is the one who, who pulled that boat out by the way brett was an athlete he played baseball up at Delft state and <laughs> strapping boy and uh man he got a hold of that boat and we went out I mean, I, I was, I, I was so devastated. I didn't really, I'm not, I, I didn't know what was going on. So they, they took uh, control of the situation. They, you know, got that boat, got us headed out, 
And Brett, Brett, best of my recollection, Brett Mosey drove that boat all the way up there to where, where we could get to a vehicle. And we got her loaded up, got her back over here to where we had parked on the levee. And uh, my brother got in the back seat. And, of course, I was driving. He got in the back seat and had her, and he was holding her in his lap with the jackets and stuff. And she was still, man, her eyes were in a, from what I've learned from, your wife and some other people, you know, when you have head trauma, your eyes do certain things. Well, hers were not going from side to side, I don't think. I think they were flickering up and down. I mean, constantly. There was no eye fo no focus, nothing. The eye was constantly moving up and down. They were dilated. I mean, it was all kinds of head trauma going on. And uh, Larry and I just grabbed her, grabbed her up to her in the truck. And, man, uh, Brandon Harvey had said, I, I told him, I said, Brandon, I, I don't even know a veterinarian up here. And I need to have somebody. I mean, I need to, I mean, obviously, this, he said, you need to call um, Roy Ann LaFleur. That's, you know, Rocky Roy Ann got, you know, they've got Mossy Oak Outfitters down there. She said, Roy Ann is a, uh, a veterinarian. I will get her on the phone and tell her you're coming. And so they told me where the clinic is, and they handled the phone calls to her, and Larry and I just tore out to go to uh, Greenwood, Dr. Johnson's office, I think it was. And it didn't take us long to get there. I do remember one silly thing I did. Uh, we got up there about Quito, and I was running about 110, and I had just gotten a brand-new dog kennel. And that sucker looked like a spaceship coming out of the back end of that truck. I just had to look up. It, it flew up in there. You don't want to go 110 miles an hour with a plastic dog carrier in the back of the truck. And for some stupid reason, I guess I hit the brakes to go back and get my daggum dog carrier. And, uh, I mean, you never know what you're going to do in a panic. I got down there, and I drove. All I had to do was drive by it because there wasn't much to pick. There wasn't anything left to pick up, you know. And uh, turned around, I got to Roy Ann, and they had everything ready for us. And, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but that morning, that was that morning they got broken into. And they were stealing yeah. narcotics. The cops That's were right. there. Yeah, police were there. Man, there was all, yeah, they was, uh, Roy Ann had called all the staff in. Y'all, they were fully staffed on a Sunday morning. And this had to be, gosh, quarter to eight, eight o'clock maybe by then at the most. And um, we got to the clinic, got I carried her immediately in there. They put her in that uh in that uh exam room that's right there behind check in. And uh she had already had warm compresses working and uh had drips set up. I mean Roy Ann just was incredible. I, I will never forget her. Well Steve all right you brought her into the clinic Got her on the table. I hate to ask this of you, if you rem even if you remember this, because you can tell it from somebody's eyes, their body language. What was Roy Ann's initial reaction to seeing Tess? She got, uh, the be the best of my knowledge. She was she was. Um, and very, uh, it, she was very intent on, on helping that dog, I can tell you that. She was very serious. She um, she didn't show any emotion 
while I was standing there, while she was uh, working on tests, there was another lady in there, I think Miss Mary. Does that sound right? Yeah. A uh, lady that worked for her. The, and then there was another guy that was in there. And the, and the most, I guess the greatest thing about all this is, is that uh, Miss Mary is the one that started praying for my dog right then. And wow. Roy Ann, <clears throat> Roy Ann kept her composure and continued to work on tests. She set her up on a double drip. She had a drip in both front legs. Uh, she had given her, I, I think she had given her some probably some pain meds. Uh, I don't remember everything that Roy Ann did, but I think what got Roy Ann is that... Uh, we were all out, or I was with my brother. We were out in the lobby. And we were like, uh, she said, I got two grown men crying like babies out in my, you know, out in my uh, reception area. And it got to her eventually. I mean, she, 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 she got emotional about it, but that was fine because we... She had gotten Tess warmed up by then. She had put all, we had her in layers and layers and layers of blankets. Uh, they had uh, done everything that they could possibly do. And then what she was doing was setting us up because she she kept telling me, she said, I don't really have everything here that I need. You're going to have to take the dog to uh, Mississippi State. Uh, if if anything you know positive is going to come from this, and she said I, I'm not going to give you a good prognosis on this. She said you know Tess is hurt bad. Did did she do an X-ray on Tess's upper body, uh, head before I, going not, to Mississippi I, I State? No, I, I don't remember her doing that. No, uh, as a matter of fact, since it's still shot, you know, we get graced by our illustrious federal controlled government that we can't, you know, shoot an alleged steel shot. You can't, you know, once you get the steel shot, if it's in their head, they can't do anything. They have to, I think we ultimately got, uh, the, we couldn't do uh, the, the MRI because it's metal and, you know, of course, those magnets right. kill her immediately. So we finally got her over to, uh, which uh, got her to state, and we did a, a, a CT scan, I think, of some kind that, that didn't have that negative effect that, that MRI would have had. But she got I think, I think one of the most telling parts of this story is when they bought that X-ray or the that back in the room, they told you how many pellets was in Tess's head or right. upper body. Right. <clears throat> well, what what had what happened is that when I left Greenwood, I, you know, and, and look, you, you can't plan for. I don't care what you do, you can't plan for this. Uh, you can do some preventative stuff, but I mean, I got the wine owner, and I was out of fuel, so I had to stop and get fuel on the way to Mississippi State, and I still made it there in about an hour. And uh, I had decided that morning that. If anybody had gotten behind me, around me, or whatever, they were going to, have to follow me to the vet school, and they could write me a ticket or put me in jail or do whatever they wanted to do at that time. But I was not stopping that truck until I pulled up, and they had her uh, out and inside that building. And when I got there, 
um, Dr. Brian, who I think was a classmate of Roy Ann's, was waiting yeah. on him. Yeah, and Christine she Bryan. She's an awesome yeah. vet. Christine Bryan, that's right. She met me at the door with a gurney and said, uh, you know, we'll start to just start taking care of her immediately. And, and of course, we had the drips still going. We, Larry and I monitored the two drips all the way over there. And, you know, there wasn't any much change. But by the time we got the test there, got her on a gurney and got her inside, Dr. Bryan went back there and made an evaluation and basically came back and said, you know, she's probably not going to make it through the night, but uh, we're going to try. We're going to do everything we can. And she told me we're starting mannitol, which I, I guess I'm saying that right. That was a long time ago. But it was so, it was a uh, drug to keep her, her brain had started swelling. And so they, they started the mannitol and uh, tried to get her calmed down with that. She, uh, Tess was blind in her left eye. She couldn't walk. Uh, she could not maintain balance. She had a... a um, a right to left head tilt. In other words, she went. She her head was cocked to the left side, uh, blind in one eye, couldn't couldn't walk. I mean, she would like it was like she had palsy when she walked, and she couldn't walk. She laid down. She didn't get up till about two days later. But anyway, they got all that started, and about the third or fourth day, Rocky, um, they said, you know, we we got a they they set up a. Uh, and I can't remember if it was the first day, second day, I lose track of time. But anyway, they went in and did a CRT and found out that she had 26 pellets in her head, and those are 26 black cloud pellets. Wow. Uh, and she was shot. Uh, she was shot on the right side of her face because that's, she was swimming, like I said, left to right as you're in the duck hole. So she was shot in the right side of the face. And one of those pellets, somehow or another, made it around and ricocheted off of something, and it went right down through the middle, the two center lobes of her brain, and lodged right in, you know, where you feel the smart knot, we call them, on the back of the dog's head? Yeah. About an inch in front of that, one of those pellets is still there. It's in the middle of her brain. And uh, the neurologist over in Atlanta, I think, is who they were consulting with, or maybe Birmingham, I can't remember, said, you know, as long as that pellet doesn't move, um, so far so good. But that's one, that's one of the pellets that could have dropped down to her brain stem, and it could have done something to her um, uh, spinal fluids that would have killed her instantly anyway. So anyway, with all that being said, she had 26 pellets in her head, and I've got a dog laid up in a kennel at Mississippi State. And that, they, that's, that's absolutely amazing to me. 26 pellets. Hey, Black clouds. You, we Black did not clouds. say this, and I, I don't want to reverse this story. How, how far How far was the shot when it happened? How far was Tess from? Oh, man. Shoot. 20 yards. Um uh, very close range. There's two hundred. There's two hundred and something pellets, I think, in a black cloud, and uh, she got twenty six of them. So here's where the good news starts. Uh, we get her over there, get her up in the kennel. Doctor Brian and them are taking care of her. Of course, all the med students, you know, are 
baby or pampering or watching her 24-7. And I get, that was on Sunday, I I, I called my best friend who is Dr. Baxter Kruger. and he's not a medical doctor. He's a soul doctor. He is a uh, he's got a PhD in systematic theology from King's College in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, and he is absolutely my best friend. And I called Baxter and I said, Baxter, I said my dog's been shot, and I said Tess has been shot. I didn't say my dog. I said Tess has been shot, and I want you to go with me tomorrow. And I want you to lay hands on my dog, and I want you to pray for my dog. I don't want my dog to die. And um, he said, you know, <clears throat> not a problem. Uh, you know, what time we leave? So we all bailed out, you know, 7, 30, 8 o'clock that morning, got up there. And um, they welcomed us and took us back to where she was. And she was uh, in one of those huge, you know, big kennels they've got in a nice facility over there. And it was big enough for Baxter to get up in there with her. And uh, they had a couch in there. I mean, it was it was a nice situation. I mean, with all the where all the dogs were kept and students were all you know observing stuff and so forth. And he got up in there with her and laid hands on her and petted her and prayed over her and talked to her. And uh, that afternoon, man, she got better. That's what I will say. From that point on, there was a drastic change in Tess's health. Incredible. Started going Incredible up. Change. An incredible change. Um, she uh, she constantly got better. Uh, from that afternoon, at night, she she kind of started waking up a little bit, and she she actually pulled herself up into a sitting position. wasn't steady, but she pulled herself up into a sitting position and started drinking a little water. And that's what they were really looking for, was for her to show some signs of... she was When she was laying there initially, she could they could tell she was responding to her name, but she couldn't really do anything. And then later that night, she began to drink, drink a little water, respond a little bit better. The next morning, she was sit, sitting up and, and was still unstable, but she was getting better, and she got better, and she got better. And so, believe it or not... Uh, Six six days later, I took her home, and that would have been December the 20th. That was five days before Christmas, which was one of the best Christmas presents I ever received in my entire life. She was still very unsteady, but she was walking. She was up. She was walking. Uh, Dr. Bryan said, you know, the best you could possibly have as an outcome here is you'll have a good pet. And I said, well, I want a pet. You do whatever you need to do. I said, I'm, you know. Do not put this dog down and do not jeopardize her. And so uh, she said, well, I'm going to tell you, she's probably not, you know, from the looks of it, she's not going to be able to hunt again, and she's probably just going to be a pet. And I said, well, can I breed her? I mean, could we possibly get some uh, other puppies off of her? Because I think she's a fantastic dog. And she said, well, we don't know right now. We'll just have to wait and see. And that's basically when she told me about the, you know, if there was any possibility of the pellets moving in her head. And particularly that one when it was in the center of her brain that could drop to the brain stem. So with all that being said, I got her home. And she was wobbly. She was slipping around. We got some concrete floors and some wood and stuff. And she didn't want to go up and down steps. She was blind in her le- still blind in her left eye. 
and she still had the head tilt. And so it was kind of like, you know, uh, nursing an old person back to health when they, you know, can't walk and they can't see. And, you know, I, I think she was, I don't, I don't remember her having trouble hearing, but that was enough to deal with. And as time went on and we, we did what they told us to do, she uh, got where she was walking better. Her head began to straighten up. And I was back in the bathroom, uh, not that that is any relevant point, but I was in the bathroom and uh, on a, and um, I got to look at her and she was blinking her left eye. And I thought, you know, if you can't see how you light your eye, you're not going to blink. And so I went, got, I got a cotton swab, and I, I got, actually got an eye patch and put over her right eye. And, and my Tess loves uh, a, a decoy, a dummy. She loves anything she put in her mouth, she's going to go for it. I mean, that's how, you know, she's, she's a broke dog. So I put that patch over her eye, and I stuck something in front of her mouth, and but she went around there and, and, you know, like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do with that, and bit it. And so she finally got full vision. As far as I know, she got full vision. She may need a pair of glasses. She's never told me she did. <laughs> <laughs> she might need, some, yeah, might need some contacts. But other than that, uh, I, I called Dr. Brian. I said, she's seeing out of her eye. I said, I cannot believe this. Rocky, three weeks later, I was out. I was back at Durwood Strains, and she was she was picking up uh, speckled belly geese. Three weeks. Really? I hunted her before the season was over. I hunted her the last ten days of the season. I hunted her, and she was just happy she could be like nothing had ever happened, and has been that way ever since. And that was uh, nine years ago. She's Tess. Yes, Tess is two thousand. She's ten years old. This past June, she's ten, almost ten and a half. So you you figure that out. That's nine years ago. And I, she's out there in the kennel now. I'm going to leave you with one more story. I thought that that was going to be it, but couldn't have a dog podcast without including this story because a number one selling country music hit was derived from this next dog. And Ramsey Russell tell this, tells this story so well. The dog's name was Jake. And here's the rest of the story. But the crazy thing about meeting this guide, Mike McBride was his name. He was tall. He wasn't quite a big tall as Justin Martin. Let me tell you guys something. You see him on TV, he looks like a big old boy. When you meet Justin Martin in person, it's like that guy on the green mile that everybody just looks straight up in the air at. He's a big guy. He's a big guy. This guy wasn't that big, but he was tall. I'd say six foot, six, six foot four. And remember, I'm a duck hunter from Mississippi. I meet this guy. And he's got a long mullet down past his shoulder blades, permed up, blonde beard. And in the in the <laughs> early morning, in the early got to respect morning, the man that's got duck guy that's got a mullet. Now I'm oh, he got long hair, and and it's all wavy. I, I, to me, it looked like a perm. Maybe maybe it was natural curl, but but I never forget. You know, I couldn't help but notice. 
he had a diamond earring, you know, diamond stud, his earring. And just first impressions, super, super guy, heck of a duck caller. But first impressions was, boy, you ain't Mississippi no more. This is my duck guide this morning, and I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we have duck guides like that in Mississippi and Arkansas. You know, so, well, Mike, what do you do when you're not duck guiding? I'm a musician, he says. I play gigs, man, and he starts playing air guitar like bass guitar. Boom, 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 boom. I just mentally file up. Well, he probably played at the local Ramada on Friday night. You know, I'm sorry. That, that's just my impression. <laughs> we get in the truck. We get in the truck. He says we're a little bit early for where we're going hunting today. Let me let's go let's go to camp and we'll get sorted. We got we go have about fifteen, twenty minutes. So we go we go to the little staging area there on the farm we're gonna hunt. It was a little mobile home. Very clean, very well kept, very well located. And you know, Rocky, the thing about it is when you think of when you're in Washington D C in that area, if you've never been, you are in an ocean of humanity. And once you get over to the eastern shore, even though there are quite a few folks as compared to Mississippi with a state population of three and a half million people, or probably less than that, you know, when you get over to that part of the world, it, it's surprisingly, the eastern shore of Maryland is surprisingly a lot of agriculture. Rural. Yep. It, 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 it really is. Yeah, it really is. Nice houses, nice landscape, but it's agriculture. You got to be careful of deer running out in front of the road. At least you did then. We get to this little old trailer, and I'm just, you know, getting my boots on and looking around. And he got this stack, neatly stacked, and there in his den of his guide house, stack of wooden and cork decoys. Beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. Right? I'd never put my hand on a working decoy like that. I'm from Mississippi. We use just cheap old plastic and pop bottles if we needed them. And I'm marveling at them. And he starts telling me about, you know, because everybody, remember, that's where the Ward brothers are from. They're so, that's where uh, all of those old Haver de Grace carvers, they're all right there on the eastern shore. It's a huge, huge culture in that part of the world around Chesapeake Bay where all the market gunners came from. And he described it way back in the good old days when he was a little boy. He and his dad had bought them from just a local no-name car for five bucks a piece. And like a lot of those guys, when they came out with those newfangled, gee whiz, plastic decoys, you know, a lot of them old boys just went and burnt them old heavy water log things they had. And and the only ones you see now that are being auctioned for a fortune are just ones that, you know, nobody ever got around to getting rid of. They got stuck in a barn or in the attic or out behind something else in a garage and, you know, or somebody just kept them for sentimental reasons. He, I remember him telling me he wished he had them all. But he had a, a reasonable pile of them. And so we go out to hunt on this narrow little creek, Swan Creek. And it was, it was bone-chilling cold. It would be, you know, that kind of front that hits, kind of like this one that hit. Remember how windy and blustery it was yesterday? The day after, that kind of real deep Arctic blast comes through, and it's bone-chilling cold, and it, but it's still the wind, the wind hadn't laid down yet. It's just 
blustery and just just you know you don't want to hit your hands with a blunt object they're so cold that kind of day and we go out and it's windy and we go out to this little creek and we and, and the whole creek as far as you can see is lined with phragmites it's kind of like it's kind of like a cattail but it but it, it's, it's longer and taller and more slender and more brittle and we set out a few decoys plastic decoys not those nice family heirlooms, which we hunted over the next day under the threat of being killed and buried on the farm if we shot a low bird over them. And we did not. And we're sitting out there and we're shooting birds and it it's just it's just a magic day. I can tell you it was a better morning than it would have been wherever I would have been hunting back home. I just know for a fact it was me and Mike and another guest or one of his buddies, I can assure you it was a whole lot better matter of action than anywhere else I would have been hunting that morning. I, I was confident of that. And we were shooting mallards. Do not shoot hens, he says. There are too many mallards. We, we'll, we'll get our mallards. We'll wait it out. Just, just pick our shots. But the craziest thing about those, those mallards were they would, it's like, you know how you got to read those birds, and some birds want it loud, and some birds want it quiet, some birds want to do this, want to do that. It was weird because it was big flocks of mallards, Rocky. It was fairly big flocks of mallards, and it's like if you got quiet, part of the flock would drag the other flock away. So you got loud. Well, now the other part would come in, but the other part would fade. It was maddening. They would hang just out of range, and, and you just call and call and call and call. It's like, my gosh, what do I do to you know? So it wasn't just a, it wasn't just chip shot shooting. You had to call him. And he kept, you know, he had a real fast cadence. Man, da, 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 da. he kept telling me, these birds don't like that southern draw. They don't like that southern draw. They can hear they 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 they, 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 they want to hear my call. You know, you know, but but and what what I found out because I shot three bounds that morning. When, the, when his dog came in with the first band, I'm like, holy cow. Well, it said Remington Farms on it. I'm like, what the heck is Remington Farms? He goes, that's a DuPont duck, man. What's a DuPont duck? Well, DuPont's a big old agrochemical corporation somewhere up there, and they outgrow bazillions of mallards. It's like they just... Maybe they still do it. Maybe they did it, but at one time, then, apparently, to propagate the wild bird population, Dow Chemical, who's not a duck hunting company, would would raise a bunch of mallards on their property. As the birds grew up, they would just kind of venture off. And what it was is they had mixed in with the wild mallards. And the DuPont ducks liked loud and fast and aggressive but the wild ducks with whom they were mixed did not they were mixed and they were put on each other see what i'm saying yep. so it was a little frustrating and it, it was but it was nonetheless it was a very very awesome hunt he had a one-eyed yellow lab named jake that had put his eye out on a piece of phragmite when he was a puppy kind of walked around like popeye I ran around like Popeye. Awesome dog. Man, he would get up in those, those frags and 
It's real dense like cattails. We drop one across the creek, man. He would hit that water, swim across that creek, swim all up in that mess and come back out with that matter. Never missed a beat. Never missed a beat. And we had a lot of fun that morning. Well, <clears throat> some of the young guys listening may not remember this. Some of the old guys may not remember it. But Bill Clinton was in office back in those days. And put all the politics, anything you think about Democrat, Republican, and all this crap going on, just put all that aside. You know, back then, conservatives didn't like him. But, but the country was being run by a very conservative House and Senate. So we had, That's right. he, he had no choice but to be a moderate. And really and truly, it was good to be a young American getting out of college and building a family and building a home in that period of time, regardless of who's president. And like I said many, many times, you know, put all the politics and put all the Hillary and put all, put all that, forget that part of the story. At the end of the day, duck hunters are duck hunters. And around that time, around that same period of time, that year before I showed up to hunt here, Bill Clinton, former governor of Arkansas, who you got to figure is probably a duck hunter. It hadn't crossed my mind that he was a duck hunter until it was all over CNN and major news outlets. Bill Clinton went duck hunting. He went duck hunting somewhere up there on the eastern shore. And, oh, my gosh, you know, it was all over TV. It was like, like live for hours. And, and, the, and the most endearing image I have of, of that spectacle was him literally sitting on the side, of, you know, the back bed of a truck, just sitting in the back of a truck, sitting up on the side like anybody would, and him holding a single hen mallard. That was it. The president went hunting, shot a single brown duck. And somewhere during the lull in the volley, we got to talking about that. I said, Mike, you know, Bill Clinton hunted up here somewhere, president of the United States. He goes, and Bill, uh, Mike talked like a rock and roll. Yeah, man, he, he talked like a musician, man. Man, Bill Clinton stood right where you're standing, right here. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, man. He stood right here, he hunted right here, and I was his guy. I said, Mike, that's incredible. You guided President Bill Clinton, the most powerful man in the universe? He goes, you dang right. I said, I'm sitting here looking at this pile of greenheads. I go, you let him shoot a hen? He goes, huh, he's president, Ramsey. I said, well, I'm sitting here looking at all these ducks we got, all these birds have been flying, especially since there wasn't no southern accent calling. In the blind, I can't believe you, you took the most powerful man in the universe duck hunting he only come out with a single hen mallard he said son let me tell you something he said back here's my trailer out there on the road he said everybody every news agency in the world was right there right there piled around he said man they, 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 they trucks and vans and 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 rvs and they had them big satellites and there were people milling around and writing on my on on notepads and they were just everywhere they were milling around everywhere. He said, and up and down for miles up and down this, these woods were, were men talking in their sleeves in trench coats. He said, F-14 Tomcats, wow, wow, flying airs. Man, they, that man was guarded like nobody else. 
and I hope the black helicopter don't kick my door in five minutes, Rocky, and, and, and take me out for saying it. But according to the story, he said, that man shot everybody ducks. He shot everybody ducks. He just wanted to come out with that brown duck show the world. So they didn't get mad at him for you know, being a duck hunter. At that moment in time, I realized, you know what? I want to hunt with the President of the United States next time he goes hunting. And I was young and impressionable, and all I could think is, oh, I wish I wish I hunted with Bill Clinton. And and so, <laughs> so anyway, I didn't hunt with Bill Clinton. But years later, years, years later, I know the story's dragging on, but you got to think Paul Harvey, rest of the story. We're talking about the most famous celebrity I've ever hunted with. So years later, I'm hunting up there with Chris Wujic in Michitoba. Chris had taught me into coming up to do a snow goose hunt. I didn't want to do. I, I was hunting with Lane Gill at the time. We were we were we were doing a lot of spring snow goose shooting, uh, creeping and and jump shooting birds. And let me tell you what: Patrick Pitt, Steve Pitt, Pat Pitt, they wrote the book back in those days on how on, on how to save the tundra. And I was right there with them. I mean, they wrote the book on how to save the tundra, and we were having a good time. And, you know, by the time you got done running those bitches and doing everything involved with it, I didn't care if I ever saw another snow goose <laughs> for a while. You know, Kill every white devil alive. Every, well, I mean, we, 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 took, we took it to fleet level. We posted, we posted some pictures on, on, on the Internet one time that, that just broke open World War Four on the Internet, uh, just some pictures that just disturbed people. Especially the guides, you know, that were they're trying to decoy. The class would show up with pictures. Like, oh, we don't see too many birds. And the guy was like, uh. But anyway, we uh, Chris Wookie called me up and, and invited me to come up there snow goose hunting, spring snow goose hunting. And I'm like, man, you know, I don't care if I ever see another goose right now. I'm just, that's a long way to go. I don't think people will be interested, blah, blah, blah. And he said, Mr. Russell, I guarantee it'll be the best spring snow goose hunt you've ever been on. I said, well, I take that pretty serious because down here in the South, guarantee goes a long way. He said, I understand. He said, if you come up, if you'll come up here and hunt with me, if it's not, if 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 if, the, if the two or three days you hunt with me to check me out, if they're not the best decoy snow goose action you've ever had, I'll, I'll reimburse you for your plane ticket and we can part ways. I said, I'm coming. I flew up there. I brought you're gonna fly with like three boxes of three inch steel ammo on a plane that's eleven pounds. And I went through my my stores, a little my little cash, and I, and I pulled out three boxes of steel fours for snow goose hunting. I said, We'll see how good that hunt is. We'll see how good that guarantee is. That's all I needed. It would have been the best snow goose hunt. I'd ever been on the main migration that passed through weeks ago. Had a few old birds holding out. Nobody was hunting them. Nobody was disturbing them. There may not be but 250, 300 of them, but they've been sitting there for two or three weeks. We eased in in the morning and just lit them up. It was, it was, it was spectacular. It was awesome. And kind of word got out because of the way we were, we were publicizing ourselves pre-Facebook on the internet on chat rooms. And we got, I got contacted. Get Duck was young, and we had to take advantage of opportunities back then. And I got contacted by somebody that was related to an outdoor television show sponsored by Beretta, I, be, I believe. 
And so we scheduled to go up there and film the show with them the following year or two, whatever it was. And I get up there with some clients, and the hunting's tough. It's a hard north wind blowing. It's the first week of May. The hard north wind blowing, and the whole migration has stopped. It's waiting on the wind to lay down. They're all down around Devil's Lake, which not too terribly far. It's just a few hours flight to the snow goose flaps to get on up that part of the world, but they had just sat. They were, the migration ceased in the face of that north wind. The clients and I shot a few birds. I'm, I'm, I, it wasn't a bad hunt, but it just wasn't the hunt, you know, I had experienced. And the company had sent a whole bunch of full-body decoys that they had to hunt over. And, and I don't know how John Mann found us. I don't know how he drove up on us that day, but where we had been hunting, there seemed to be some goose activity. Before we loaded back up the trailer, just Chris and I, we decided let's pull out these darn full-body decoys and assemble them. Well, there we are, twisting heads on and punching feet in the bodies and getting everything sorted and getting everything bagged when up comes a, a, rent, a rental, SUV rental, and out steps Sean Mann. Sean Mann Goose Calls. And I don't know if you ever met him, but Sean is just such a nice guy. He's such a good guy. Um, and I know, <laughs> no pressure or nothing, he says, but y'all got any geese around here? I've been driving around all day and I ain't seen nothing. Chris and I have been kind of worried because we got a TV show coming that there ain't enough geese to make a TV show. Thank God they're going to be there four days. He said, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll kill some, don't worry. And it was slow the first two days. I can tell you that right now. And we ended up going back out that same field, and it was myself and Sean Mann and Chris and a couple other people related to the show or Beretta or something, you know. And it was just that kind of hunting where you're laying out in the field as long as you can stand it. It's raining, and the wind's out of the north. It's not raining, raining like, like you know, frog choker, but, but it's raining enough you got to kind of squint because it's wanting to fall in your eyes. All day long, we may have shot a half dozen birds. It was terrible. Sure didn't make much of a TV show in the first couple of days like that. But that day laying out in the blind, just you had a lot of time to talk with the people you were hunting with. And I learned how Sean Mann got into making those these call his. He was a musician. And, and as, I, as I remember, and I may be wrong because it's a long time ago, as I remember, he played the clarinet in high school. You know, and, and a lot of the same air qualities and tongue in the notes and doing things and his interest having grown up in the eastern shore uh, out there around the Chesapeake Bay and, and geese is a big, big thing out there, the Canada geese. And that just kind of parlayed itself into a goose calling business, a various, you know, world championships and everything else. And somewhere along in that conversation, I heard him say he had a drum collection. You know, goose collar, musical instrument, drums. <clears throat> I'm like, oh, you got drums? He, he says, yeah, yeah, I, I, I play drums, man. I play gigs, man. And, and all them years <laughs> later, just the way he said, with that, with that, with that, with that Eastern uh, Shore brogue, something to affect. I play gigs, man. You know, drums. He's talking, you know, drums. Kind of played a little air drum, you know. It just 
boom. You know, it just, it just like like deja vu. And so I just said, you know, this is a reach. I hadn't seen this guy before since. This is a reach. But have you um, you know a guy named Mike McBride? He goes, yeah, he's our bass guitarist. He comes over every weekend. Man, we we play music. He's our bass guitarist. I go, wow, that's incredible. You know, I hunted with him, start telling the story and everything else. And um, getting up to the most, me, most famous celebrity I've ever hunted with. And I got kind of quiet, and he says, when you hunted up there with him, what dog did he have? I said he had a one-eyed yellow lab. And he, he kind of chuckled and go, yep, old Jake. I said, yeah, how was him, Jake? He said, well, that was a great dog, wasn't it? I go, sure was. He says, well, let me tell you, let me tell you kind of the rest of the story, Rem, because I know I know Mike didn't tell you this because he, you know, just he didn't brag, didn't want to say nothing. It's just life as a musician. He said, "But Mike's also a songwriter." Did you know? He said, "No, nah, I just no, nah, he just played. You no, know, I just knew he played bass guitar sometimes, you know." And uh, he said, "Yeah, he he and he he wrote songs like a lot of musicians, and he and he sold a song." He said, "You know, there's two ways you sell a song." sell a song for a little bit and keep royalties or you sell a song for more and you take the money up front and he said when you sell it like that a lot of you know starving artist type might have to do that sometimes you know whoever you sell it to kind of owns everything so they they their 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 name and credit may just disappear so he says he says but you know he wrote a song about that dog you hunted over i said really he says yeah he said, and it went all the way up to the top of the billboards. I said, what is it? He says, he wrote a song called Feed Jake. Feed Jake. So Feed Jake, he's been a good dog, my best friend right to the end. Oh, Pirates wow. Mississippi bought it and sold it all over the radio. So when people ask me, sometimes they do, just like you did. Hey, you know, you hunt with a lot of people. Who's the, who's the most famous person you've ever hunted with? The answer is it wasn't a person. It was one of, it was the, most, one of the most kick butt labs one-eyed i ever hunted with on one of the coolest hunts i've ever been on in a part of the world that was unexpected seeped in history dog that fetched duck for president bill clinton and everybody on his security detail and and it, and, it, and it lives forever in the annals of country music history i thought that you know so I, I always think of that when i think about fame you know the coolest thing is you know that dog didn't know anything about fame. He was just a duck dog. He just did his job. He fetched ducks. He did what he wanted to do. But in that cold, I actually hunted with Jake of the song Feed Jake. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed today and talking about our best friends. These animals are our best friends. You know, Justin Harrison said it so well. We understood what these animals go through every time we put them out there, and we would we would treat them so much better, respect them so much more. They go through hell for us. But thank you again for tuning in to this edition of the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckTown.com.